Last time we turned to Luke's gospel, which was a couple of weeks ago, Jesus sat at the table with his disciples and he taught them about true greatness and about real life. He explained to them that true greatness consists in being a faithful servant of God. And he also confronted these fairly proud men with the truth about their own weakness. Peter announced that he was ready to go with Jesus to prison and to death. But Jesus said, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you even know me. Never mind going with me to death. Then as Jesus finished his teaching at the Passover table, he prepared his disciples for the hostility they were going to face from the world around them. In many cases, their allegiance to him would cause them to be rejected. They would have to persevere in the face of opposition. We said last time Jesus was teaching these things in the shadow of the cross. He knows that within hours he's going to feel the agony of crucifixion. So we might wonder what he's thinking and feeling at this point. What's his state of mind? Well, we're about to find out. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Luke chapter 22. In the church Bible, that's page 1058. We'll pick up this morning at verse 39, and we'll follow this through to verse 65. This passage divides into three sections. Each one of them teaches us about Jesus. And we'll think too, as we look at these, about the difference that all of this makes to you and me. We learn in this passage that Jesus loves his Father above all. We see him surrendering to darkness in order to conquer darkness. And we see Jesus preparing to lay down his life for the unworthy. So look with me at verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. These verses certainly have things to teach us about prayer. But most significantly, these verses show us the inner Jesus. We might say they show us Jesus' heart. And what we find is that Jesus loves his Father above all. The Passover meal is over. And Jesus heads, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. We've known from chapter 21 that while he's been in Jerusalem, it's been his custom to spend every night on the Mount of Olives. 
his disciples follow him, and he gives them this instruction in verse 40. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. We'll think about that command in a few moments because Jesus repeats it later. But first, notice that having instructed his disciples to pray, he then withdraws from them to pray himself. It's no wonder he wants to be alone with his father. Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. Verse 41 says he knelt down. That's a significant detail. The Jewish custom was to stand to pray. Kneeling is a gesture of humility. Before he even begins to pray, Jesus is bowing physically before his Father. And then look again at what he prays in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. What does Jesus mean by this cup? It's a way of referring to the suffering and death he's about to go through. He's going to experience the full, undiluted wrath of God. It's not wrath that he deserves. It's wrath that's due to this world for its sin. But Jesus is going to take it on himself. And here he describes it like a bitter cup of wine that he's going to drink down to the bottom. At least, that's been the plan. It's what Jesus came to earth to do. But here, within touching distance of this cup of suffering, Jesus asks to be excused from drinking the cup. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He's asking not to have God's wrath poured out on him. There's no other way to read this. And if we're honest, Jesus' words probably make us feel a little uncomfortable here. How is this possible? Jesus is God's son. Didn't he know from eternity past that he was headed to the cross? Doesn't John tell us that Jesus said, I and the Father are one? Doesn't that mean they share the same purpose? That their wills are united? So what is this that we're hearing from Jesus? Maybe this prayer makes us uncomfortable because we're not used to thinking of Jesus as fully human. The New Testament presents us with a Jesus who was both fully God and fully man. And of course, we accept that in theory, but we struggle to hold on to both truths equally. In some church circles, it's easy to forget that Jesus is God. He's presented as everyone's buddy. He's our mate, Jesus. The fact that he holds the keys of death and hell tends to get forgotten about. But I don't think in this church we're in danger of being over-familiar with Jesus. We're not in danger of downplaying his deity but we may be a bit shy about his full humanity. In being rightly concerned to honor him as Lord of the universe, we may gloss over the New Testament's description of him as our friend and our brother. He's described as able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way, just as we are. It's an amazing thing to think about. 
Think of your own struggles. The Bible says Jesus has faced the same temptations. And the Bible can say these things about Jesus because he was and he still is fully man. God the Son didn't just appear to be a man for a few years. He became a man forever. So we have to do our best to honor Jesus the way the Bible does. As fully and completely God and at the same time fully and completely human. And what we see here on the Mount of Olives is Jesus the man, our friend and our brother. We see him agonizing over the pain and suffering that's part of the Father's plan for him. We come together here every week. And as Morris has already mentioned in his prayer, each of us brings with us human emotions. Emotions that are very often tied to our circumstances. So sometimes we come and we're joyful, we're bubbling over about something. And other times, we're almost in despair over the things that are happening to us or the things that are about to happen to us. We come here with our emotions. And it's possible that no one else in this room can understand how we feel. Our brothers and sisters do their best to carry our burdens. They try to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And we appreciate it. We love them for doing it. But maybe we still feel alone. We know that they don't really understand. But then we turn to Scripture and we find the one who truly does understand perfectly. God the Son has experienced the heights and the depths of human emotion. We can come to Him, we can come confident that He understands us. Now, the fact that Jesus understands us is wonderful. But if all he has to give us is sympathy, then we're not much better off. So we can be thankful for the rest of his prayer in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes we have the idea that Jesus loves you and me more than anything else. I can think of one popular praise song that says, when Jesus went to the cross, he thought of me above all. Now that sounds nice. It appeals to us, but it's just not true. The Jesus we find in the New Testament knows how we feel, and yes, he does love us, but he loves his Father above all. In this moment of agony, when he wanted to turn away from the cross, it wasn't first and foremost love for you and me that caused Jesus to move forward. It was love for his Father. On one level, Jesus does not want this cup that's ahead of him. He doesn't want the physical pain. He doesn't want the human scorn. He doesn't want the hours when even his Father turns his face away. And yet, this is his father's plan. This is his father's will. And so the son will drink the cup. He will go to the cross. Because he loves his father above all. 
Now, this is not at all to downplay Jesus' love for you and me. He does love us deeply. And we'll see that later on in our passage. But what we're being shown here is simply that you and I are not the center of the universe. God is. And the love between the Father and the Son is at the heart of God. And we can be very thankful for this love. We can be thankful that Jesus loves his Father more than us. Because his love for his Father led to our salvation. Love for his Father carried Jesus from the Mount of Olives unto the cross. Luke tells us that God the Father responds by sending an angel to strengthen Jesus in this moment. That doesn't mean Jesus' agony goes away. If anything, his agony increases. Verse 44 is talking about what happened after the angel came. It says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. God the Father does not change Jesus' circumstances. But he gives Jesus the strength he needs in those circumstances. The cup will still have to be drunk right down to the bottom. But Jesus will be given the strength he needs to do it. The greatest significance of these verses is what they tell us about the cross. They tell us the cross became a reality because God the Son loves his Father. At this moment of crisis in Jesus' life, love for his Father overcomes the pull of his human desires. Human desires for comfort and escape from suffering. And the end result is salvation for all who trust in Jesus' work on the cross. So the greatest significance of these verses relates to Jesus' unique situation. His mission as the once-for-all sacrifice for sinners. But it is also true that Jesus is an example for us. Certainly no one else will ever die for the sins of the world. But all of us, sooner or later, We'll face a crisis in our lives. Maybe we'll face a situation where obedience to God will cause us to suffer. Maybe to suffer the loss of a precious relationship. The loss of a promotion. The loss of a certain standard of living. Or maybe we'll find ourselves in the midst of suffering that has nothing to do with obedience or disobedience. It just happens to us. An illness, maybe the death of someone close to us, redundancy, false accusations brought against us. All of us will have a crisis to face. Some of us might be in the middle of one right now. And the main issue will always be for us, what is my priority? Is my priority getting what I want? Removal of the pain, an easy life, some position? Or is my priority that God's will be done? If my priority is getting what I want, then I will disobey God to get it. Or if my situation is one that I can't do anything about, like cancer, 
then I will curse God in the situation because he's not giving me what I want. Or I'll slowly turn away from him in disappointment. And this is where Jesus is not only our savior, he's also our example. He shows us that we must develop a love for God that trumps everything else. And we begin to do that as we take our desires to God and lay them before him honestly. And then say to him, this is what I want. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. I want a husband or a wife. I want this particular husband or wife. This career, this university course, this level of health or wealth. I want children. I want my children to turn out this way. This is what I want. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Over and above my own desires, I want your will to be done. That is my greatest desire. If we begin to pray that and mean it, pray it and mean it even when we'd rather not pray it, we'll be showing that despite our weaknesses, we love our Father in heaven above all. We'll be acknowledging that we are not the center of the universe. God is. His plan is. And God will respond to us as he did with Jesus by strengthening us to trust him and obey him. That's why Jesus does what he does in verses 45 and 46. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. In the context here, the temptation is to elevate their own will above God's will. And in the verses that follow, we'll see the difference between Jesus who has been in prayer and the disciples who haven't. Jesus has surrendered to his Father. And that leads him to another surrender in verses 47 to 53. Verse 47 says, While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas... One of the twelve was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus surrenders to darkness in order to conquer darkness. When we looked at the Passover meal earlier in this chapter, we asked why Jesus made such secretive preparations for the Passover. You may remember that he didn't give the disciples an address to go to. 
Instead, he told them to follow a man with a water jar through the city. That man would lead them to the place for the meal. Why did Jesus make such secretive arrangements? Well, he did it because he knew Judas was going to betray him. He knew Judas had been instructed by the leaders to hand Jesus over when no crowd was present. Passover meal would have been a perfect opportunity for Judas. But Jesus was determined to eat that meal with his disciples before he was betrayed. So he made sure Judas didn't know where the meal was going to be. He couldn't tip off the Jewish leaders. But now the meal is over and Judas has slipped away. He didn't know where the meal was going to be, but he does know where Jesus will go after the meal. We've already mentioned Jesus' custom of spending every night on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus does not break from his custom on this night. He doesn't break with his custom even though he knows Judas will know where to find him. Jesus is going to be captured, but it's all on his terms. It happens when he allows it to happen, not before. This is a planned surrender. Jesus is not being taken by surprise. He is giving himself up. We've just seen him in anguish as he prayed. But he has been strengthened by his father. And in this scene, we see him composed. He's carrying out God's plan. The only orders in this scene are given by Jesus. He's in control here. He's in control even as he surrenders. Judas has arranged this kiss as a signal. He singles Jesus out from all the others. Presumably this is to make sure that Jesus can't slip away in the dark. It's to make sure that the guard capture the right man. But if Judas had heard Jesus' prayer, he would have known there was no danger of Jesus slipping away. Jesus will not try to escape the cross. But Judas didn't hear that prayer. In fact, none of the disciples heard it. And so the other 11 don't realize that Jesus is in control. They can't imagine how this situation could be for the best. And so they ask in verse 49, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And then apparently, without waiting for an answer, verse 50 tells us, one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. In the midst of his own betrayal, Jesus has the mercy and compassion to heal a wounded enemy. And he makes sure that none of his disciples get arrested. His disciples probably would have been glad to thrash around a bit more with their swords. But he stops them. He is the only one who's going to be arrested and tried as a criminal. And then Jesus turns to the leaders and he points out to them the irony of all this. Verse 52 Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the teachers, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. 
Jesus has just shown that he's not a man of violence. He's not a criminal or a destroyer. But they're going to kill him. They have no case against him. They're arresting him in the dark because they would never get away with it in the daytime. But then having underlined the fact that they have no right to lay a finger on him, Jesus says in the second half of verse 53, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Literally, this is your hour and the authority of darkness. Remember, these men arresting Jesus are the religious leaders. But he confronts them with the fact that they're serving the power of darkness. Twice already this chapter has mentioned Satan's involvement in all this. This is not just happening because the leaders are proud and Judas is greedy. Satan himself is working through their plans to make his move on Jesus. And God is permitting him to do it. Darkness has been given authority. And yet above all this, there's a greater power at work. There's a greater plan being carried out. After Jesus had risen from the dead, this is how Peter sums it up in the book of Acts. Speaking to the Israelites, he says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. As he looked back at these events, Peter realized it wasn't the clever plans of the leaders that led to the cross. It wasn't Satan's power. Those things were in operation, and they were genuinely evil. But they weren't the true reason for the cross. And it wasn't Jesus' weakness that led to the cross. This crowd would never have taken him if he hadn't surrendered to them. The ultimate reason for the cross was explained by Jesus as he ate the Passover. He explained that the cross was God's way to punish sin and yet save sinners. Jesus would die as a substitute for sinners. His body is going to be given for sinners in their place. His blood is going to be poured out for sinners. As Jesus stands here surrounded by swords and clubs, he's not being taken by surprise. He's not being overpowered by his enemies. He is surrendering to darkness in order to conquer darkness. Satan and sin and evil and death, they will have their hour. But in that hour, they will be conquered. Later, Paul could look back and write in Colossians that God disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. On the cross, Jesus took our sin on himself. Our sin has been punished in him. When we trust in him, we're free from the guilt and the power of sin. The devil has no hold on us. He has nothing to accuse us with. He has no power over us. His hour has come and gone. And this night in history, God the Son surrendered to the darkness. And by his death, he conquered the darkness. 
those who belong to Christ can live today with no guilt in life and no fear in death. Earlier we said that Jesus loves his Father above all. But his love for us is genuine and deep. And in the next verses we see that very clearly. Look at verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Jesus lays down his life for the unworthy. On the surface, the focus of the text has now moved to Peter. But in fact, Jesus is still at the center here. Back during the Passover meal, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. And here it comes true. We're being shown that Jesus is the one who knows the future. The high priest's house would have been built around a central courtyard. That's where Peter positions himself. Jesus is in the house and Peter is outside. Remember, this is the Peter who only hours ago had said in private, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now it's time for Peter to live up to that promise in public. But look at verse 56. Look who it is who causes brave Peter to crumble. Look at the frightening figure who intimidates him. It's a little servant girl. One commentator points out that Jesus called Peter the rock, but here he's acting more like a jellyfish. Three times Peter denies Jesus. And apparently as the cock crows, Jesus is being moved from one wing of the house to the other. As he's led across the courtyard, verse 61 says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. In his fear and his bluster, in his desire to save his own skin, Peter had forgotten what Jesus told him. But now he remembers and he weeps bitterly. And as Peter is weeping, look again what's happening to Jesus in verse 63. 
The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Jesus is being mocked. Play the prophet for us. Little do they know who they're dealing with. He is a prophet. He knew Peter would deny him. He knew that this mocking and beating was going to happen too. Back in chapter 9, Jesus explained that he would be mocked, insulted, spat on, flogged, and finally killed. The man being mocked as a prophet is a prophet. So is that the point of this section? Is this here to underline for us that Jesus genuinely knows the future? On one level, yes. But the point goes much deeper than that. This incident with Peter shows that Jesus went to the cross under no illusions. He has always known the people he's going to die for are unfaithful and unworthy. He has always known they would let him down. Even the best and the strongest of them, even Peter, none of them are worthy that God the Son would die in their place. Jesus knows that, but he's going to die for them anyway. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is our God. This is the depth of his love. This is the reason you and I have hope. If Jesus died for people who don't deserve his love, that means he died for you and me. Sometimes we have such a high opinion of ourselves. And yet sometimes we show that by strutting around full of pride. But just as often we show our high opinion of ourselves by how we react to our failure and our sin. Yes, it's right that we hate our sin. It's right that we show remorse for it and turn from it. But sometimes we come to God and our mindset is something like this. Lord, you must be so disappointed with me this week. Last week was good. I did well last week. But now I've messed it up. I hope you can still love me, Lord. I'll try to make it up to you next week. When we think like that, we have far too high an opinion of ourselves. Do we really imagine Jesus would have been impressed if only we hadn't committed that sin last week? Do we really imagine that one sin has surprised Jesus? That it's ruined his high opinion of us? The truth is, from eternity past, Jesus knew every sin that you were going to commit. He knew the sins you would commit last week, and next week, and ten years from now. He knew about all of your pride and your ungratefulness and unfaithfulness and your disobedience. 
He knew all of it, and he died for you anyway. Jesus didn't die for you because he thought you'd be worthy of his love. He didn't take a gamble that you were going to turn out well. No, Jesus never had any illusions about you, or about Peter, or any of us. He knew the kind of people that he was dying to save. He knew that we were unworthy, and he died for us anyway. It's what the New Testament calls grace. Giving us what we don't deserve. Grace is not an excuse for us to be soft on our sin. The more we understand what Jesus has done, the more we're going to hate our sin. It was our sin that put him on the cross. This is not about excusing our sin. It is about glorifying the amazing grace of God. This is a love that's deeper and richer than any human love. It's a love beyond our ability to grasp. And yet, it's the love God has poured out on us in Jesus Christ. Songwriters have tried to find ways of expressing it. Amazing grace. Love incomprehensible. But in the end, eternity will not be long enough for us to grasp the greatness of this love. Here in our passage, Jesus looks unworthy Peter in the eye. He could have been looking at unworthy me or unworthy you. And then Jesus goes on his way to lay down his life for the unworthy. This is love divine. It's a love that you can begin to experience this morning. It's a love you can rest in for all of eternity. And it's a love that moves us to love in response. To surrender ourselves to this God of love. To pray, not my will, but your will be done. We're going to close our service with a song in praise of God's love. The song is, My Song is Love Unknown.